text from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 23, if you'd like to follow along. Mary Catherine and I were just conferring over some of the proper names in this passage, so my apologies in advance to you scholars who know how to pronounce them, for real. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of the Lord on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate him before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. 
and Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. pray. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would descend upon this place, that you would be present here, and that we would know that you were present. Open our hearts, help us to see Jesus, change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a dancer, by which I mean not that I was ever on a dance team or a backup dancer in a music video, though I know that's not hard to believe, <laughs> but I used to love to dance all the time. It wasn't always that way. In fact, I remember one of my first dances, just standing on the side, as boys often would, the entire time, just bobbing my head to Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me and salt and peppers Push It. But before long, I was practicing in front of the TV, learning every step of Rhythm Nation, and soon enough, I was the guy. I was the guy in the middle of the dance circle, putting on my best running man and Roger Rabbit. Yes, it was the 80s. I loved to dance. I bet some of you are wondering what it looked like for me to dance. You know what? I wonder what it'd look like for you to dance with all your might. Finally, at last, David was king. Years earlier, he was quietly anointed the successor to King Saul, who had by then been rejected by God. Now that Saul was dead, as we discovered in our study last week, David, at 30 years old, took the vacant throne. But maybe not surprisingly, this transition of power wasn't without conflict. The commander of Saul's army insisted on keeping the former first family in power. And so he installed Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as king over the northern tribes of Israel. And so a bloody power struggle ensued between the house of David and the house of Saul for several years. Until finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see all the tribes of Israel were finally united under King David. It's around 1000 BC at this point, and David reigns for a total of 40 years. As today's passage opens, we're told in verse 1 that 
David gathered together all the abled young men, the able young men of Israel, about 30,000 in total. Why? To bring up the ark of God, we're told. What's the ark? When you hear the word ark in the context of the Bible, you might think of Noah's big boat. But maybe if you're an Indiana Jones fan, you remember him, you may have seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you therefore may know that David and his men aren't moving a boat, they're moving a box, a rectangular box, about four feet long, about two feet wide and two feet deep, which was made of acacia wood and plated with dazzling gold, with two golden cherubim angelic figures at either end. You see, the ark was a portable royal throne. And you might have seen ancient artifacts, maybe in a museum, like it, uh, where a king or a pharaoh is depicted, propped up on a highly decorated seat resting on the shoulders of servants. Maybe you've seen this. Well, whose throne was this, this ark? David's? Well, six times in the passage, the ark is called the ark of God. And seven times in the passage, it's referred to as the ark of the Lord. In fact, the last part of verse 2 refers to the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. See, the ark was God's portable throne. And this ark had been stored for about 30 years in the house of a priest named Abinadab in the town of Baloch. Now it was time to move it to a more permanent home in Jerusalem, the city of David, the new capital of this newly united kingdom of this new king. And the whole point of this relocation of the ark was to show this, that for all of David's greatness as king, God would always be the true king of his people. And so they set the ark on a cart with wheels pulled by oxen. And off they went. It was an exciting day. A very exciting day. A huge crowd came out for this grand parade. We're told in verse 5 that David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might. They brought out all the instruments, castanets, harps, Lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And if you don't know what all those instruments are, it's okay, neither do I. But I know this. It was loud. It was joyful. It was a great day. Nothing could go wrong on a day like this. Nothing except, well, everything. What happens next in this story is one of the most stunning sequences of events in the entire Old Testament. It's also one of the stories 
in the life of David that best reveals the nature of God. Because what David encounters and what we then encounter through him is a God worth trembling before and a God worth dancing before. We encounter a God worth trembling before and a God worth dancing before. He's a God worth trembling before, you know. Well, what happened in the story? We're dying to know. No terrible pun intended there. So, the ark of God is rolling down the hilly road in this cart. But of course, in ancient times, the roads would have been unfinished and bumpy and full of surprises, unlike our, I mean, so basically like our streets here in D.C., when suddenly, verse 6 tells us, the oxen stumbled and the cart teetered and Uzzah, one of the two priests who were guiding the cart, reached out and took hold of the ark of God. Thanks, Uzzah. You're a hero, Uzzah. What would we have done without you rescuing the ark, Uzzah? No. Verse 7, God struck him down. And Uzzah died there before the ark. What in the world? Why did Uzzah get struck down by God's judgment? And here's how verse 7 explains it to us. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. Why? Because of his irreverent act. Irreverent act, huh? See, here's what you need to understand. Uzzah was trained as a priest. He knew exactly what his duties were, and he would have understood without a shadow of a doubt from Exodus 25 and Numbers 4 and 7 and Deuteronomy 10 and all the training that he would have received that no one in any circumstance was permitted to touch the ark, lest you die. He would have known that the ark, in fact, was designed for this reason to be carried on poles. That's why there were golden rings on the ends of the ark on the sides where the poles would have been inserted. That way, when transported, it wouldn't need to be steadied or touched in the first place. Well, how do we know this was an issue in this story? Well, later in verse 13, when they try their do-over, the text referred to those who carried the ark. In other words, this time they ditched the creaky cart from Walmart, and this time they used the poles. Uzzah ignored the command of God. Uzzah was cutting corners, getting a little bit sloppy, getting presumptuous. I've got this. Don't worry about it. He's my God. Uzzah grew up with the Ark of God, you remember, in his house his whole life. You've got to wonder at what point he might have begun to think 
God, I know God, he's my roommate. Or worse, God, you mean that box in the garage? One Old Testament scholar, Robert Gordon, comments, through this tragedy, the men of Israel are reminded that the ark is not an object to be handled familiarly. You see, some of us have become like Uzzah. His death wasn't only judgment. It was that, but it wasn't only judgment. It was also a picture. It was also a window into what had been in his heart. As teacher and author Eugene Peterson notes, actually Uzzah's death was years in the making, a a slow sort of spiritual suicide. His mistake here wasn't just a mistake of a moment. It was an expression of a lifelong slide into familiarity with God, lacking any fear or fervor. His heart was a heart that had ceased trembling before an awesome God. His was a soul that had lost all awe of God. Could it be that we too have gotten too casual with God? Almost without knowing it, have we too become irreverent? Have we forgotten that God is holy? Friends, God is holy. Now, most of us associate that word holy with moral purity. Of course, that's part of it. God cannot bear to have sin or unrighteousness in his presence. He must judge evil. It's his nature. But the main meaning of holy isn't moral purity It's to be separate. It's to be set apart, to be radically different than, transcendent even. As theologian Sam Storms puts it helpfully, God's holiness points to his infinite otherness. And God's holiness is not just one attribute among many. His grace, his compassion, his patience, his truth, his wisdom, and then also his holiness. No, his holiness is the infinite otherness, the perfection of all of God's attributes. God's compassion, in other words, isn't like our compassion. It's holy compassion, never-ending, never secretly driven by self-centered motives. His forgiveness isn't like our forgiveness. It's holy forgiveness, unchanging perfectly, never passive-aggressive, never reluctant. God's power isn't like our exercises of power. It's holy power, never corrupt, never driven by selfish ambition, but unlimited. A power that's able to move planets and hold 
galaxies of stars on the tips of his fingers, and yet so intricate that he can coordinate every cell and carbon compound and subatomic particle in your body. His presence isn't like our presence. His is a holy presence, uncontainable, never limited by physical space, such that he's just as much with you when you are in your bedroom crying yourself to sleep as he is for the sister in Christ in Syria also crying herself to sleep. He's everywhere and present with everyone who bears his holy name. Nor is he bound by time. A thousand years is for this God a blink of the eye. His patience is a holy patience. His wrath is a holy wrath. His love is a holy love. God is holy in all that he is. So when Moses asked to see God's face, God said in the book of Exodus, now, if I did that, you'd die. Because no one can look directly into my face and live. But I'll tell you what, God said, I'll let you see me in passing. And then even then, I'll only let you see my back. And then even then, I'll hide you in the cleft, a crack in the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand so that you'll be able to survive the experience of my holiness. And afterwards, that experience was so intense for Moses. Did you know that Moses' own face, his face now, literally glowed with God's holy glory, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face because the Israelites were too scared to approach him. Now think about this. If the afterglow from a human being's passing glance of the glory of the back of a holy God is enough to terrify people, what do you think it'd be like actually to see the face of this holy God yourself? He is holy. And so it's no wonder that Hebrews 12, even after unpacking the wonders of God's grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience in Christ, the author yet urges, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, do you practice the holiness of God? Or has he become your roommate? Or the box in your garage? Has God become to you manageable, rescuable, predictable, small, 
say. When we sing to God, do we worship him with breath-stolen awe and wonder. You know, because anything that's worth giving our lives to has to arrest our hearts with awe. Are we raising our kids to do the same? Or when we work, do we do all things before the face of God, who deserves praise in all that we do, in all our relationships, in all our conversations, in all our private time alone at home. Or when we're confronted with uncomfortable parts of scripture, uh, parts maybe that challenge our own views on life, do we make the Bible bow to us or do we bow before the Bible? Do we grant God's word the final authority to speak into our lives? When we pray, do we tremble before this God? Do our bodies reflect our hearts in prayer, which means occasionally that it's right to come to God physically on your knees or even on your face. It might be worth even trying that this coming week. And don't get me wrong. Please do not get me wrong. We, yes, should be delighted in God through Christ and comforted by God and freed by grace to come as you are. But the point is, free never means flippant. That you should come to him without religious pretense, but that never means without reverence, dear friends. Do you see the God worth trembling before, do you also see what David saw, a God worth dancing before? And you notice that after Uzzah dies, at first David is angry. Verse 8, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And then his anger turns into fear. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. See, because God's holiness is so vast that sometimes, oftentimes, when confronted with it, it's disorienting. It's confusing. What's remarkable is God does not condemn David for this response. He gives him space. He gives you space to process it. To engage the holiness of God. But it was rough at first. And so David, he canceled the trip. And then he dropped off the ark at the house of somebody named Obed-Edom. I mean, after all that happened, you got a body on the ground. I mean, can you imagine being picked to take the ark home? It's like, no, you, you take it. You, you take it, right? 
But then eventually something changed David's heart. What was it? It was an experience of God's grace. See, if all you ever experience is God's holiness, you'll only cancel trips and run away from God. The ark sat there, which is to say symbolically God was there in Obed-Edom's house for three whole months. And we're told in verse 11, the Lord blessed him and his entire household. We don't know exactly what kind of blessing they experienced. Were their crops unusually abundant? Or was it the noticeable joy in their family? or maybe the visible confidence in God that they had in the midst of suffering, we don't know, but we do know this, everyone, everyone noticed. In verse 12, now King David was told by whom we don't know, but he was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And upon realizing this, Upon seeing this and processing this, it says, So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, Jerusalem, with rejoicing. David had to learn and relearn that this God of overwhelming holiness was also a God of overwhelming blessing. Overwhelming kindness, overwhelming grace. So David danced. Let the parade begin again. David and Israel carried the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, we're told in verse 15, with shouts and sounds of trumpets. David wore a, a linen ephod which was the formal uniform of Israel's priests. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, you notice, after only six steps. No more presumption here. Only sacrifices of gratitude and praise. And we're told in verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. He was electrified with uncontainable joy. He was carefree, almost, almost reckless, praising, laughing. David danced like he'd never danced before. He was alive to God. And David's wife, Michael, hated him. We're told she despised David in her heart because she had little of God in her heart. She wants David to be more, more regal, more distinguished in the eyes of others. She wants David to be religious and respectable, not enraptured by God's love. She cares so much about what other people think 
far more than she cares about what God thinks. In fact, she doesn't see God at all. All she sees is a box. You know what? We all have a little bit of Michael in our hearts, don't we? It's why we don't dance to the gospel. But I will celebrate before the Lord, David says to her in verses 21 and 22. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes that he might be exalted. Does the good news of God's grace ever make you lose yourself? Ever make you lose your paralyzing self-consciousness? Do you ever get to the point where you are more aware of the loving gaze of the eyes of your heavenly Father than you are the gaze of other people around you, lost in his truth and love? Is the joy of the Lord in your heart ever uncontainable? Does it ever bubble over, not just in your mind or just in your words, but occasionally even in your body? Listen, I know some of you are about to get a little nervous right now, like I'm about to tell you to dance. And I'm not saying, and I don't think this passage is saying, that you have to literally dance like David all the time. Because the main thing is having a heart that dances. Not just your body. Does your heart dance with good news and a good song? And if so, your body might follow. Indeed, occasionally, it should. But the Bible isn't going to prescribe what that dancing looks like for you. But I do want to say that more of us probably have more of that in our bodies than you might be willing to admit. How do I know? Because I've seen you when you welcome a loved one at the airport. I've seen you burst with uninhibited delight. I've seen you dance with your kids when all you care about in that moment is making them dance and laugh. And I've seen you when your team wins that championship, that long-awaited championship, and I can almost see what you dance like when no one's looking or what you'd look like dancing in the dark. And now you've got me sounding sketchy because I'm trying hard to convince you that you've got more dancing in you than you probably think in Jesus' name. The most important thing isn't how you dance, of course, but why you dance, you see. What moved David to dance before the Lord? David saw God's blessing pouring out from the ark, but here's the thing. It was the same ark 
The same God from which God's wrath poured out. Some of us have no dancing in the gospel because we haven't first encountered the holiness of God. You haven't recently seen or perhaps ever seen that from which you needed to be saved, a God of holy wrath. Or you haven't experienced the infinite immensity of God, which is precisely what makes God's all-attentive, detailed love in your life such a wonder, a heart-exploding wonder, as David himself wrote in Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set into place, I consider what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Because I've seen how big you are and comparatively how small, indeed how sinful I am. See, friends, if you get rid of a God worth trembling before, you lose that God worth dancing for. But David experienced both, didn't he? David got a glimpse of the ark that poured out wrath and blessing. More importantly, David got a glimpse of the greater ark. Uh, the ark to come, that place where God's wrath would again one day collide with God's blessing, where God's judgment would be poured out upon the one who would stand as our substitute, dying an Uzzah-like death that we should have died, though he lived the holy life that we should have lived of perfect trembling and awe and honor and perfect dancing and joy and celebration before God. This greater ark from which pours out undeserved Kindness to sinners like you and me. Blessings like the forgiveness of our sins. Or blessings like being adopted into God's family as his beloved daughter or son. Or blessings like obtaining life eternal, which simply means personally knowing this God of all holiness. Now with intimacy and life-changing power. This is the greater ark of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Son of God was undignified and humiliated in death, even as he called that ark, that cross, his throne. David saw it, in part, we now see it in whole, by faith. David danced with all his might, having seen it, having seen so much more, how much greater should be our dancing indeed. True love for God, friends, true worship is awe and celebration. Dear friends, Let's tremble before the
the Lord. Dear friends, let's dance. Let's pray. What we really need is for it to pour into our hearts, for you to pour your spirit into our hearts, a spirit of awe, a spirit of joy, a spirit of trembling, a spirit of dancing. Because we've seen you, Jesus, because we've experienced good news. So help us to see you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Amen.